Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studio on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Republican state lawmakers are introducing a set of major reforms to the state's election laws. As a possible preview of sweeping GOP change to election laws uh, if Governor Evers is defeated. Among the major provisions, a requirement that a legislative rules committee can oversee elections guidance and have the power to nullify proposals made by the election commission. Another provision would turn the currently nonpartisan general counsel of the election commission into a partisan position. Yet another would severely limit the use of mail ballots to those physically unable to leave their home. It would give the GOP-controlled Joint Committee on Finance authority to unilaterally abolish positions and cut funding of the Elections Commission. The governor is almost certain to veto the bills. Today, legislators considered a measure to change the Wisconsin Constitution to require greater use and higher levels of bail. In response to the mass casualty event at the Waukesha Christmas Parade, Republicans are proposing to change the state constitution, which currently allows judges only to consider a defendant's likelihood to appear at trial. The GOP proposes to add the seriousness of the charge, the need to protect the community, the the possibility of intimidating witnesses, and other factors. The measure would take Wisconsin in the opposite direction of other states that are eliminating cash bail, including Illinois, California, and New York. To pass, the resolution would need to be approved twice by the legislature and approved by voters via a statewide referendum. The leader of the Senate Democrats, Janet Bewley of Ashland, has announced that she will not seek re-election. This may make the task of maintaining one-third of the Senate in Democratic hands much more difficult. There are currently 12 Democrats in the 33-member body. If Bewley's seat is lost, the GOP will have the necessary two-thirds majority to overturn the governor's vetoes if he is re-elected. In 2020, Trump won a bare majority in the district. Bewley won in 2018 with only 51% of the vote and would have been facing a formidable re-election campaign. One other Democratic senator, John Erpenbach of Middleton, and one Republican, Kathy Bernier, have also announced their retirement. More than 2,000 nursing beds across the nursing home beds, excuse me, across the state have been eliminated since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the closure of seven nursing homes, staff shortages, and the transition to assisted living centers all uh, contributed to the loss. Four of the seven closures have been in the southwest part of the state, including facilities in Dodgeville, Reedsburg, and Broadhead. Members of the National Guard have been required to enroll in Madison College nursing assistant courses in order to meet the challenge of the shortages. Although homes receiving state aid saw an increase in funding of $356 million in the current state budget, they are seeking an additional $50 million. As of last week, 81% of nursing home staff and 89% of residents were reported to be fully vaccinated. The Capital Times reports today that Madison officials are concerned that a new bill would sharply limit local government's role in building and regulating electric vehicle charging stations. Republican lawmakers' initial bill encouraged the installation of more electric vehicle chargers, like Madison Gas and Electric's new charging hub on East Washington Avenue. 
However, a proposed amendment in the bill dramatically changes those terms, banning local governments from owning and operating electric vehicle chargers except those used to charge vehicles that the city owns or leases. Rhodes Conway asked why Wisconsin's legislative Republicans are advancing a bill that would, quote, stifle innovation and tie the hands of local government, especially since the federal infrastructure bill invests heavily in electric vehicle charging infrastructure. She said electric vehicles have the potential to bring jobs, economic development, and increased transportation choices to Wisconsin, and that local governments should be a part of that picture. A recently proposed building on East Washington Avenue is receiving a major revision before being built, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The site, which is across from Bree Stevens Field, was originally proposed as an 11-story tower with commercial space on the ground floor and office space on the other 10. Kurt Brink, who proposed the structure back in 2019, cited rising building costs for the change. The new proposal would add 105 apartments to the building and is currently under consideration by the city's Urban Design Commission. And now for your COVID-19 news and numbers, as all Wisconsin counties continue to be at a critically high level. Daily case numbers are trending downward as the seven-day rolling average of cases approaches 5,562, the lowest weekly average since the end of December. The seven-day average of COVID-related deaths stands at 24 deaths per day. That's amid reporting from the New York Times that COVID-19 is killing Americans at a far at far higher rates than people in other wealthy nations. Since December 1st, the deaths in the U.S. have been twice the rate of major European nations. Meanwhile, the Madison Metropolitan, Metropolitan School District is out with updated numbers today, with 544 COVID cases among students and staff the week of January 24th. That was an uptick from 431 cases the week prior. That's according to reporting from the Capital Times. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Since the late 1980s, communities have been able to purchase land under a program called the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program. The program is meant to conserve land for public use and keep it from being developed. But a bill being considered at the state capitol would make it easier for governments to sell that land, bought with public tax dollars, to private developers. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has more. The Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program has been around for decades, enabling communities and nonprofits to purchase land for conservation and public enjoyment. Jim Welsh, the executive director of nonprofit conservative group Groundswell Conservancy, says that the program has several important factors. Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program is actually an amazing resource uh, for the state of Wisconsin. It's a program that's been around uh, for, I think, more than 30 years now that provides funding for the DNR, uh, for local government, cities and villages, nonprofit organizations to, gry- to buy great pieces of land that form sort of the wonderful conservation background of our state. So a village can use it to add land to a, to a village park. Uh, we can use it to add land to a conservation area, and, and counties and states can do the same sort of thing. The money from these grants help to support things such as bike paths, city and county parks, and the Ice Age Trail. Currently, the stewardship program helps to purchase land with the understanding that the land will be conserved. If a municipality or organization wants to sell land bought with money from the stewardship program, 
They would need approval from the DNR. But a bill recently introduced by Republican state lawmakers would loosen requirements for selling land bought with Knowles-Nelson funds, potentially undermining conservation efforts the fund is intended to protect. Specifically, it would allow communities and nonprofits who purchase land with funds from the Knowles-Nelson stewardship to then sell the land without getting any approval from the DNR, so long as they reimburse the state. All the Knowles-Nelson stewardship landowners would need to do is inform the DNR of their intent to sell the property. The issue first arose in Langlade County in north-central Wisconsin after a county bought a Boy Scout camp using money from the Knowles-Nelson stewardship. Now that the camp sits vacant years later, the county hopes to sell the land. Representative Calvin Callahan, a Republican from Tomahawk, helped write the bill. He says the intention is to streamline the process of communities and nonprofits selling their land. Unfortunately, there is a lot of red tape these recipients must cut through in order to sell, transfer, or convert this purchased land bought with stewardship funds. Assembly Bill 852 simplifies this process for non-government conservation organizations, counties, and local governments from start to finish, while still maintaining the intent of the stewardship program. Conservationists say the bill could defang the intent behind the state's stewardship program. Charles Carlin is the director of strategic initiatives at Gathering Waters, a nonprofit that focuses on defending land trusts across Wisconsin. Is I think relates to the, the trust and the faith that landowners and donors to conservation projects put in the land trusts who carry out these projects and in the state of Wisconsin to be good stewards of land. So when somebody chooses to put their land into conservation, even if they're selling that land to the state or a land trust, they're oftentimes doing that at what we call a a bargain sale, meaning they're selling it for below what they might be able to sell that land for on the open market because they want to see their land conserved Carlin says that there are also issues with cities and nonprofits turning around and selling these pieces of land for profit. Under the bill, for example, a city could buy a piece of land with funds from the Knowles-Nelson stewardship and through public donations. Then, after the land has risen in value, a city would then be able to sell that property for a profit without having to pay back anyone else who has contributed money to the purchasing of the land. As of the airing of this broadcast, eight groups have registered against the bill, including Gathering Waters and Clean Wisconsin. Only one group, the League of Wisconsin Municipalities, has registered in support of the bill. The authors of the bill could not be reached for comment by airtime. It's not the first time Republicans have come at the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program, which is typically renewed every decade. Last year, during the state budget process, Republicans only renewed the program for four years and cut funding for the program to $32 million, less than half of what was proposed by Governor Tony Evers. Also discussed at today's committee meeting of Forestry, Parks, and Outdoor Recreation is a bill that would make the DNR set aside money for the Knowles-Nelson stewardship for water infrastructure and parks across the state, such as bathrooms and water faucets. It has been introduced in both chambers, though today's meeting was in the Assembly. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. And the time is just coming up on 6.18 p.m. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Yesterday marked the beginning of Black History Month, and the Madison Public Library is hosting several events throughout the month to celebrate. From the book club meetings, wellness seminars, and even a mini-film festival, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Elizabeth Boyd from the Madison Public Library to hear about the events. To celebrate Black History Month, the Madison Public Library has a host of events happening all month in support of black authors and artists. To talk about all these events, I'm joined by Elizabeth Boyd with the Madison Public Library. Elizabeth, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start things off with tonight. Can you tell me about Laura Coates and her book and what's happening here tonight? Yes, so um, as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival, we have an in-person event tonight at Central Library um, featuring Laura Coates for her book, Just Pursuit. Um, So Coates is well-known as a CNN analyst. She hosts her own radio show, and she was a prosecutor during the Obama administration for the U.S. Department of Justice. So in Just Pursuit, she's talking about her time and her team while prosecuting cases where she quickly realized that even with the best of intentions, the pursuit of justice creates injustice. So I think this book is an important book at the criminal justice system and the idea of justice itself. Um, And kind of a fun little connection is that Coates served as a moderator um, for another Wisconsin Book Festival event in early 2020 for um, Stephen Wright, and tonight he's going to be serving as her moderator. So it will be kind of a reconnect and reverse this evening. By the time this airs, it's around 6.30 here. What time is the the event and where can people go to find it? The event starts at 7 p.m. on the third floor at Central Library in the community room. All right, so now we also have your Black History Month film screenings. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, so Alicia Ashman Library um, has been hosting what they call the Alicia Ashman Film Festival, where they're featuring um, an individual actor uh, throughout uh, the month. So they do these screenings on Wednesdays um, in the afternoon from, let me check, I think it is 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., Um, And in February, they're going to be celebrating Morgan Freeman. So we all know Morgan Freeman as, like, this amazing uh, narrator, actor, director. And so they're featuring four different movies that he was in throughout the month of February. So the Goodman South Madison Book Club is also involved in Black History Month. What are they reading this month? They are, yes. So they have a regular book club that meets. um, Everybody's welcome to join They're going to be discussing the book Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Um, James McBride is a National Book Award winning author, and they're going to be talking about um, his his newest book, which kind of covers a cranky old church deacon who um, witnesses a uh, a shooting in a housing project in South Brooklyn set in 1969. So that should be a really interesting discussion. And when is that book club meeting? That's taking place on Saturday, February 19th from 1.30 to 3 p.m. And that's at Goodman South Library, um, meeting room 115. And do people need to register in advance for this meeting? They do not. No, we have um, copies of the book available at the reference desk or they can put a hold the link cut or, you know, access an ebook or audio book. 
So it's really just, you know, try and read as much of the book as you can, and then it's a walk-up situation. So those are some of the big events that are happening there, but I know that there's also several other events happening for Black History Month as well. What are some of the smaller events that are going on? Well, we actually have one other um, kind of large-scale event, which is cool. It fits in with the Black um, History Month theme this year, which is Black Health and Wellness. So on uh, Thursday, February 17th, from 7 to 8.30, we're hosting a virtual summit for different health and wellness practitioners in Madison. This is part of our Live Well at Your Library series, which focuses on BIPOC communities, and in particular, kind of networking and sharing knowledge, sharing knowledge, sharing best practices. So we're going to have a panel um, of, I think, five people. We're going to have a Q&A, and some practitioners are going to be demonstrating um, the things that they practice. So I think we're going to have a meditation session and a couple of others just to introduce um, different BIPOC practitioners, um, which I think should be really interesting. And we're doing that in collaboration with um, Be Well Madison and RSLE Esparza of uh, Wisconsin Mujeres. So why did you choose that theme for this month, for Black History Month here? It's actually not our theme. It is um, a theme by the, it's the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. Um, And they're actually the founders of Black History Month, and so they introduce a theme every year. Now that we've gotten all the big events out of the way, what are some of the smaller things that are going on this month? Yeah, I think it's nice to be able to provide some passive activities, especially with the COVID numbers and people aren't always comfortable attending events in person. Um, but we do have some cool things that are happening in our libraries. So at Sequoia Library, we have some inspirational quote uh, bookmarks that people can pick up for free. We have displays going on at almost every library. Um, seven of our nine libraries have Black History Month displays. We have a very cool Afrofuturism and speculative fiction display happening at Central Library. Um, and then at Goodman South Madison Library, we have a Black History Month walk. So people can actually go around. We've got pictures of kind of uh, icons of black history. You can scan a QR code and learn more about that person, um, as well as some quotes and some other kind of things around the library that people can interact with. So you mentioned the displays there, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that. Can you tell me who created these displays and what do the displays sort of showcase? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our displays, we try to do them actually for for most Heritage Month. So we do some for Pride. We do some for, um, you know, Latinx Heritage Month. And they usually feature, uh, you know, books about black lives in this case, or by black authors. Um, Some of them are historical, some of it's new fiction. We usually have a display in the children's area as well as in the adult area, and they're created by um, our librarians, our library assistants, people who are interacting with our collection on a regular basis, and who kind of know, you know, what are the hot books right now in these categories. And you mentioned that uh, this month they're having some on Afrofuturism. Would you mind explaining a little bit what that is to me? Um, So Afrofuturism is kind of a cultural aesthetic. It's about, it incorporates like science and philosophy and takes from history, but then kind of talks about like the future of um, 
what's going to be happening with African Americans in America or in the world. Um, it's kind of an intersection of like African diaspora culture with technology. Well, that's all the events that are going on there. Do you have any just final thoughts that you'd like to share with us, Elizabeth? Yeah, I would just say, you know, I think um, for our perspective, it's really important to kind of honor the central role of black Americans throughout history and into the present day. We really see it as our mission to provide free and equitable access to um, educational experiences, but also cultural ones. And I would also just say that people can stay connected um, with us and what's happening with the African-American community throughout the year. We have uh, book lists online that are always available on things like Black Women's Wellness, Celebrating Black Joy, African-American History and Culture. And then we also have a monthly newsletter called African-American Culture that is always um, sharing out new uh, reads by black authors. Um, as well as any upcoming events that are happening at the library. I've been talking with Elizabeth Boyd with the Madison Public Library about Black History Month at the library. You can find a full list of events on the Madison Public Library's website. Elizabeth, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you very much. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories coming at you in the second half of the show. We'll have a look at the changing landscape of death rituals during COVID. We'll take a trip back to 1962 for drama about the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Project with Madison in the 60s. And a bit of a corrective to Jimmy, that groundhog's assessment of the weather out in Sun Prairie this morning. But first, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Virtual funerals can now be added to the list of formerly unimaginable things brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. With infection rates making in-person gatherings too risky, families, friends, religious and community institutions have all had to adapt, finding new ways to honor their recently departed. On the Monday 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with religious studies professor Natasha Mickles about how even death is changing in the times of COVID. Natasha Mickles teaches philosophy and religious studies at Texas State University. Natasha Mickles joins us now. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So what sparked this particular interest in COVID-19 effect on funerals? Well, it was the unfortunate and uh, quite sudden death of a colleague from COVID-19, a a quite young man and very unexpected. And I remember watching his funeral via Zoom. um, And I teach religious studies here at Texas State. And so I'm always thinking about how religion shapes American life. And while I was watching my friend's funeral, I couldn't help but notice these traditional Hindu rituals were being transformed to keep the family that was present safe as well as the priest that was there safe. Um, and I started to wonder if, if other traditions were doing similar changes. So I started doing what I thought was going to just be one or two interviews for a little think piece. And what I discovered was people wanted to talk to me. Um, and it sort of spiraled out of control into this incredible research project that I've started. And you said you did over 70 hours of interviews with people? I have. um, And I've interviewed, I started with religious professionals, priests and nuns and rabbis and imams. And then um, I kind of moved out from there to those who lost loved ones to COVID, uh, medical professionals, funerary professionals, just anyone involved with what I'm calling the American death cycle, just the movement of a person from the end of life care to uh, burial or cremation. Now, in many cases, you're talking about traditions that, you know, you mentioned a, a Hindu ritual, for example, which could be thousands of years old um, or have roots yes. that go back that far. And yet you found that many of these churches and these uh, these communities were able to adapt. To, is that surprising? I mean, do you, are religious institutions aren't known for being terribly quick to change practices, but was that is that what people did? Um, a lot of these communities were able to change their practices relatively quickly. And- And through working with local funeral homes to come up with new modifications that might work. And it was interesting what parts of the rituals that I noticed weren't weren't able to be changed. So they might add in, uh, particularly with the Hindu ritual example, they'll add in Q-tips for smearing uh, sandal or turmeric paste upon the deceased. They'll add in safety precautions like gloves and masks. But the chanting was still very important. Certain parts of the ritual had to be completed. And a lot of this is things where people were learning on the fly, which I thought was very interesting. As our knowledge of COVID-19 changed and as um, knowledge about how long a deceased individual remains contagious changed, some of the rituals began to transform. And so what are some of the, uh, you also mentioned um, a funeral home in Texas that was using radio technology and tuning yes. into the radio to a specific station. How did that work? So that was at the Cook Walden Funeral Home in Fleurville. They were, at the very beginning of the pandemic, he, um, Rick, Richard Davis, the man I spoke to there, said that he had about two hours at one interview that he had to call the family and say, you have to only allow 10 people in. Um, and so in the next couple of days, he tried to figure out how they could use broadcast broadcast radio. And so he showed me a picture where they had all the the cars lined up for the funeral in the parking lot and everyone was inside their vigil car and they were broadcasting radio signals out to the cars. And so the family was inside giving the eulogy. He actually said that that, that he did that for about three or four months, but then videographers started to contact him who'd been wedding videographers and they had lost most of their business because people weren't having weddings during the pandemic. And they wanted to see if they could use their videography equipment to have to broadcast Zoom funerals. And um, of all the funeral directors I spoke with, they all said that, that Zoom funerals are here to stay in some capacity. They envision that most funerals in the future will be broadcast, at least in part. And, and why is that? Why do people see this as a permanent change? Well, for a lot of people, um, it just doesn't make sense to travel back to funerals. And so if this is a way that they can participate and can support the loved one while 
still, you know, fulfilling all their other obligations of life, their child care, um, their jobs, things like that. And also, I, I've seen some research that for individuals who are secular, who might not be religious, a Zoom funeral helps to feel like you're commemorating a loved one without a lot of the trappings of religion. Um, this hasn't been a focus of my research, but uh, I know several stu- graduate students at University of California, Santa Barbara, have been working on Zoom funerals. So when you, you spoke also to some people who are participants in some of these events, do you get a sense that people felt satisfied by these sorts of accommodations or was something missing? By and large, almost everyone I spoke with did not feel satisfied by the Zoom funeral. For for many people, they felt like it was a parody of a funeral. They felt that there wasn't that sense of closure. And a lot of this, I think, was because they weren't able to have their family come together and to to really kind of feel that support and to feel that sense of closure you might with a funeral. Um, but for a lot of them, there was this, this sense that things weren't normal. And because things weren't normal, you know, we talk about in religious studies that, that ritual works because it takes very everyday things like wearing black or, or crying and, and makes them part of something extraordinary through using specialized words and specialized language. And that works on this idea that we have a shared sense of normal reality. But everyone's lives were so completely upended by the pandemic and in many ways still are that if you don't have a shared sense of normal, you can't notice when things are extraordinary. Um, this is something I always talk about with my students here at Texas State. And so for most of the people I interviewed, this was not satisfying for them. Was there a generational difference there in, in whether people found this acceptable or not? Um, not really in my research. I interviewed people uh, as young as 19 who had lost grandparents to COVID-19. And then I interviewed uh, people in their 60s and 70s who lost their partners. Um, and for all of them, um, at least everyone that I interviewed, this was not satisfying. And uh, I thought that was very interesting because so many of the religious professionals I spoke with acknowledged that this was not as satisfying as they would like, but still felt like they were somehow completing this ritual and that they were um, at least checking the box in some way. But somehow it was not uh, it was not fulfilling. And so, uh, I mean, what do you think? Do you think there are other things that will I, you mentioned that the, the sort of virtual funeral is here to stay? But yes. are there other things that people are learning from this process about better ways to process that sort of grief? Um, I think at this point, we're all it's it's still so very fresh and people are still in, in many ways still traumatized that I think we haven't had an opportunity to really think about what we've learned about how to process um, about how to process this grief. Uh, I feel that the the past, I guess coming up on almost two years now, um, have really shown how important gathering is um, and how important actually being with each other is at the time of, of funerals and the time of death. Um, additionally, I do think that one thing I have noticed is that there, what's being revealed is that there is this importance of a social recognition of your loved one's death. When a loved one dies, um, outside of COVID times um, and outside of a, a COVID-related death, you know, no, everyone in society is, is, you know, if you tell someone my father died, they'll be upset for you, they'll be sad for you, um, and that they will commiserate with you. Uh, but one of the things with the COVID deaths that I found interesting um, was that uh, for many people, they would say my loved one died of COVID, and immediately there would be this move to say, are you sure it was COVID? Well, mm-hmm. didn't they have type 2 diabetes? Wasn't it also this? Or even on a larger spectrum, oh, COVID's not real, or this is just an illness released by a shadow government. And these ways of sort of really limiting the importance of of people's loved ones' deaths. Um, And I think that that is a big factor causing people to not not feel satisfied. So I've noticed that uh, we really do need that social recognition of a loved one's death 
to help people feel that there is closure and that they're able to grieve. And I think that you know a lot of this is happening in digital interfaces on and Facebook communities. Um, and so I think that there's an anonymity to that where you can say really terrible things to a person. Um, but I also think that people are scared, um, especially before vaccination. They wanted to know that, you know, I think they want a sense of security that, well, this couldn't happen to me because I don't have type 2 diabetes or I don't have this particular illness. You know, but the reality is, as happened, was kind of evidence with the death of my, my friend, you know, COVID can affect everyone, regardless of whether you have known comorbidities. Is there a difference in climate based on how people reacted? I mean, outdoor gatherings seem to be safer than indoor ones. Uh, are, were people who live in warmer climates able to have more in-person funeral arrangements than people who live up in the north? Um, I was here in Texas, you know, it's uh, usually at least in the 50s year round. Um, and so I did speak with many funeral home directors who were able to uh, eventually arrange large outdoor gatherings. Um, and that would that would work. That would work. I didn't quite have enough data to really pinpoint um, northerly climates versus kind of more warmer southerly climates. However, one of the things that I know that I ran into here when I was interviewing individuals in cities and particularly in, in Austin, Texas, is that even if you were to have an outdoor gathering, if you were to have it at church, a lot of times the church itself wouldn't have an outdoor space if it's right in the middle of our downtown. Um, or wouldn't have an outdoor space large enough to accommodate uh, that size of crowd. Uh, and so even if an outdoor gathering is more safe, you still have to have the space for an outdoor gathering. That might speak to a more urban-rural divide as well. All right. Natasha Mickles, Assistant Professor in Philosophy and Religious Studies at Texas State University. Thanks for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thanks so much. It's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, Jimmy would have done just as well to turn over and go back to sleep this morning, not only because our dull weather these last several weeks has been enough to put anybody to sleep, but because a gray sky and absent shadow notwithstanding, I'm afraid we're not going to be seeing an end to our repeated incursions of Arctic air anytime soon. And these have been coming in regular and quite long doses recently. If you look back at the climate record from January, now that that month has ended, You'll see no fewer than six separate episodes of significantly below normal temperatures, uh, typically from three to six days in length, punctuated by one or two day kind of intermissions of warmer air. And so that left us with 22 of the 31 days of January being at or below normal and an overall temperature anomaly of five degrees to the negative for the month. And while February has started off auspiciously yesterday with the warmest day of the year so far at 44 degrees, I'm afraid neither that nor the groundhog's shadow or lack thereof this morning is going to prove an augury for the coming weeks, given the way the 16-day maps off the global forecast systems model have been looking recently anyway. The upper air pattern across North America, while having undergone some minor revisions in the past few days, remains much as it looked since mid-January, with upper ridges bookending the continent to either side over the west coast and out in the Atlantic Ocean, with a deep upper trough in between, albeit one which has seen a lot of uh, quick-hitting shortwaves passing through it, most of those, of course, having gone to either side of us as they've come through. Uh, if you want a Groundhog's Day-appropriate view of that pattern from space, you might pull up the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, where you'll find an image 
all but indistinguishable from the one you will have seen there the last several times you looked. The upper ridge to the west is a little more amplified currently than it has been, but it's being held in check out there from bringing its warmer air this way by the next surge of Arctic air, which you can see descending across uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba in our direction. That's going to ensure that we'll stay cold through Friday into Saturday. We will see some moderation again as we get out into next week, but only briefly for a day or two like this past week. One thing we won't be seeing anytime soon is any significant snowfall, though the possibility does exist for some scant flurries uh, later Friday and maybe again on Sunday as some warmer air comes back at us. So onto the forecast, and again, this is one appropriate to Groundhog's Day. See if any of this seems like something you've heard before. Tonight, skies will continue to see some passing high clouds streaking overhead north, southwest and northeast, and those will be thicker to the southeast and thinner northwest. Temperatures will drop to the mid-single digits above zero by dawn, buoyed from any further descent by both the cloud cover and north northerly winds, which will be up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Tomorrow, high clouds will slowly exit east through the day, except uh, perhaps for the far southeastern part of the listening area where uh, some low lake effect clouds might uh, blow through for a while during the daylight hours. Temperatures will reach the lower mid-teens tomorrow on uh, northeasterly winds up at 10-15 miles per hour. Clearing skies and lighter winds tomorrow night will allow the temperatures to drop to around zero or slightly below by Friday morning. We'll see some uptick in cloud cover as we go into Friday and the winds back west and southwest behind exiting surface high pressure. Temperatures will reach the upper teens on west to southwest winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour by the end of the day. A few flurries may pass, especially to the north later in the day as the next cold front starts to approach. And that will take us back, uh, take the cold front will take us back towards about zero overnight as winds veer northwesterly and come down some. Saturday, we'll see another backing wind shift as slightly more moderated Canadian air starts to come in. That will take temperatures up towards 20 or so, at least the upper teens, a uh, region in which they're likely to stay actually through much of the overnight, given active southwesterly winds, which will stay up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. And will stay generally a bit warmer up in the mid-20s, say, through Sunday before turning colder once again. For a day Monday, we may warm again briefly Tuesday, but it looks like a really quite strong incursion of Arctic air is on its way in for the end of next week. It's currently 11 degrees at the station down here on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 2 below zero. Uh, passing high clouds up at about 14,000 feet. Uh, winds are out of the north at 10 miles per hour, still gusting regularly up towards 20 miles per hour, and the barometer is on the rise at 30.39 inches of mercury. Time is now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
We go now to February 1962, when the city wrang,、uh, wrangled over the future of the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace project. The NAACP proposed a tough new civil rights ordinance, and there were two urban renewal milestones. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the sixties, February nineteen sixty-two. With no progress coming in state or federal efforts for a strong civil rights bill, attorney Lloyd Barbie. The former president of the Madison NAACP, now leading the statewide organization, releases the draft of a tough new human rights ordinance that would ban bias in housing, employment, and public accommodations on the basis of race, color, creed, ancestry, or national origin. The draft, endorsed by the local NAACP, now led by Odell Taliaferro, provides a maximum fine of two hundred dollars or thirty days in jail for violations. It would replace the current 16-member Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, which Barbie chairs, with a nine-member commission with a full-time director. Like the current commission, the new body would attempt to resolve any complaints through conciliation and persuasion, but would also have the new power to order a hearing before a three-member panel to decide the complaint and issue remedial orders, which the city attorney could take to court for enforcement. The draft declares the right of all persons to quote live in decent housing, and explains that the ordinance is necessary because quote many persons have been compelled to live in circumscribed sections under substandard, unhealthy, unsanitary, and crowded living conditions because of discrimination and segregation in housing. It would apply to property owners. Real estate brokers and agents, and financial institutions, and cover the sale, lease, rental, or financing of real estate. The proposals refer to the mayor's commission on human rights. With no progress coming on efforts to build the Monona Terrace Auditorium designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, Mayor Henry Reynolds proves how powerful just the threat of a mayoral veto is. As he bends the Common Council to his will over the wording of a referendum on the project's future, the project had been in limbo since construction bids came back in early 1961, more than eight million dollars over the four million dollar budget, which had been set by referendum in 1954. Hoping to get the project back on track, supporters had sought a new referendum in November 1961, but were unable to overcome Reynolds's veto. Now they want to try again this April, proposing the question: quote, "Shall the city of Madison redraft the present plans and specifications and proceed to construct an auditorium and civic center at the Monona Terrace site?" But Reynolds says it's intellectually dishonest not to include the price tag in the question, and threatens to veto the referendum resolution. He wants the question as it's framed by the citizens' group opposing the project. The Citizens Realistic Auditorium Association, where he was vice president before getting elected in April 1961, their question asks: quote, "Shall the city of Madison terminate all plans for an auditorium and civic center at the Monona Terrace site at the end of Monona Avenue and in Law Park, and immediately take steps 
to select an alternative site for the auditorium and civic center. It's very clever language. Not only does it force supporters to explain that to vote for the Frank Lloyd Wright Project, you have to vote against the referendum, but it also lets opponents piggyback on the popular and very expensive $9.3 million school bond issue with vote yes on both referenda campaign ads. So even though the pro-project language is endorsed in a preliminary vote 12 to 10, supporters realize they don't have the votes to overcome the veto Reynolds makes very clear he will issue. Some alders accuse him of being a dictator and destroying democracy, but they ultimately yield and adopt the language he wants, 16 to 6, and put the referendum on the April ballot. Two important developments in urban renewal, the Federal Public Housing Administration gives preliminary approval to the four sites the Madison Housing Authority has picked for 160 units of public housing, including a 60-unit project on Regent Street for elderly residents of the Greenbush neighborhood being displaced by the Triangle Project. There will also be units for low-income households in South Madison, at Truax Field, and on Webb Avenue. And after almost two years of wrangling over a new site, it's out with the old and in with the new for Madison's only black-owned bar, Zachary Trotter's Tuxedo Cafe. The Madison Redevelopment Authority needs his land on the south side of West Washington Avenue for the Brittingham Urban Renewal Project, but can't proceed until Trotter is able to relocate, which he can't do until the council lets him transfer his license to a new location. But his first two attempts to relocate to a new site on the south side were turned down by the council due to heavy neighborhood opposition. He's finally able to build a two-story bar and apartments at 1616 Bell Street, which he opens on February 2nd. A few days later, the redevelopment authority starts knocking his old building down. On campus, the Daily Cardinal Board of Control names philosophy major Jeff Greenfield of New York City its new editor-in-chief, the first sophomore to hold the position in the paper's 69 history. Greenfield is also vice president of the campus chapter of the liberal Americans for Democratic Action on the UW debate team and on the staff of the Wisconsin Review, activities he is resigning to assume his new duties. Just a few weeks into the job, the 18-year-old pens an editorial welcoming Nation of Islam minister Malcolm X to campus. He takes white liberals to task for being shocked at the growing movement of black separatism. We of the white race should not be too surprised at this reaction to 300 years of subjugation, he writes, adding, quote, Our task is no longer to spread enlightenment. Rather, the burden is guilt guilt for three centuries of inhumanity and exploitation of a race. Our burden is to shoulder that guilt and to set about ending that exploitation now. The time is now for a frontal assault on racial discrimination. Men's minds cannot be changed overnight, but legal barriers and discrimination can be eliminated. Ironically, Malcolm X doesn't make it to campus due to what he laughingly calls white power a heavy snowstorm that prevents him from flying up from Chicago. 
But even without the Muslim minister, there's heavy intellectual firepower on campus at the third annual Wisconsin Student Association Symposium, featuring Nobel Peace Prize recipient Dr. Ralph Bunch, Harlem Congressman the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist Herbert Herblock Block, and a debate between liberal U.S. Senator Eugene McCarthy and conservative Russell Kirk. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to our feature contributor, Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggehaupt produced it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.